many of us, probably all of us, believe in God and struggle to believe in God. Even amongst believers, those who've been in the Christian faith for a long time, we still experience a tension between faith and doubt. So I just prayed, we're like the father of the boy possessed by a demon in Mark chapter 9, who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you ever feel that way? No one? Isn't that amazing? I believe. Help me where I don't believe. I love that text. Describes a lot of my life and yours, I would suggest. Struggling with doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. You're not a bad Christian if you doubt some of the things that Christians believe, like the existence of God, the authority of the Bible, that the cross was enough, as we actually saying, or we just saying just a minute ago. Struggling with doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. Doubt doesn't mean unbelief. For more on this topic, I'd highly encourage you to see Barnabas Piper's book, Help My Unbelief. Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. Help My Unbelief. Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. He talks about the tension that marks our lives as believers. He points out that we're sinners, yet called to be holy. We believe God is everywhere, though we can't see Him anywhere. We have one God and three persons, but not three gods. We live in this world, but are told that this world is not our home. We're saved by faith, not good works. Yet, if we have a faith without good works, our faith is dead. He says we're called to follow the teachings of a book that's clear in some parts, but mysterious in other parts. We live in tension as believers. Sometimes this tension between faith and doubt is so strong that we wonder whether we're really Christians at all. Another way to say this is that we all struggle with assurance, not insurance. <laughs> assurance. We wonder whether we're really in Christ or not whether we're really saved or not, whether we're really going to heaven one day when we die or not. Every one of us has faced questions or thoughts like this, and sometimes they can be agonizing. Have you ever sat and wept wondering whether you're actually a Christian? I suppose many of you have. And many of you will. There are lots of tensions within Christianity. Perhaps, though, the greatest tension we live with isn't so much about teachings, it's like some of the ones I just listed, isn't so much about teachings outside of us, but rather feelings inside of us. In other words, many of us struggle with assurance because of inner turmoil, not outer teaching, or because of feelings of guilt and shame and fear, 
and anxiety that we can't shake free from. Not because we have some intellectual conundrum. Though many of us certainly have intellectual conundrums as well. I think many of us struggle with assurance because of things stirring inside of our hearts, not our heads. Why? Why do we struggle with assurance? I think, and I texted like five people this week, and you all basically said the same thing. You know who you are. I think perhaps the main reason we struggle with assurance is because we struggle to believe that being in a right relationship with God has nothing to do with our performance. We struggle to believe that being in a right relationship with God has nothing to do with our performance. This is understandable because no one on this planet loves us like God does. Unconditionally. We just sang this. A love like this, the world has never known. We get pretty close to unconditional love. Kids, spouses, friends perhaps, family members. But people can do things that sever relationships. We struggle to truly love unconditionally. But a holy and perfect God doesn't have that struggle. He puts up with so much stuff from us and still keeps loving us. Unconditionally. And we struggle to believe this. You struggle to believe that. Our world is built on on performance. In the world, you have to deliver results to get the love. For example, we love our favorite sports heroes or musicians or actors, actresses, politicians, until they do something that we don't like. Then we don't love them anymore. So it's hard to imagine a relationship where performance isn't required to keep the love going. When we screw up, it's hard for us to believe that our standing with God isn't changed. We think we need to perform for His love, and we have this desire to control, both of which make trusting God's promise of unconditional love counterintuitive. Our struggles with assurance are less about intellectual problems with the Christian faith, and more about how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we understand the offer of the gospel. We assume that the gospel is mostly about sin and death, not grace and life. So we don't know what to do with the utterly free and unconditional kindness from God given to us in the gospel. We know how far we fall short, and we hate ourselves for it, and we subtly assume that God also does. Self-contempt, self-contempt, which is another way to describe shame, suffocates our assurance by making us believe that we're so bad that not even God can love us. So we work our hands to the bones to prove ourselves to God, to others, to prove ourselves to ourselves, to prove that we're good enough to be loved all while secretly wondering whether we are actually, truly, 
unconditionally, no strings attached, forever and ever and ever loved by God. And the good news is that Jesus patiently, while we sit in those places, and I don't, I'm not saying we're always there, but I think we visit that place often. And while we're there, Jesus sits with us and patiently waits for us to feel the weight of His words. It is finished. In other words, you don't have to perform or keep performing to, to, to keep yourself in the love of God. If you did, we have no gospel. All we have is the world's message. Amen? If you have to keep yourself in the love of God, the gospel is empty. And we should go home and eat lunch early. But Jesus said from the cross as He suffered, agony will never even come close to touching. It is finished. Everything that had to be paid for you to be right with God was paid. But we still struggle with assurance. We still struggle with whether or not we're really in the faith, really loved by God, really a Christian. And Christians have struggled with assurance for 2,000 years. God, being the kind and wise Father that He is, knew this would happen to His people, so He lovingly and graciously gave us a whole book, really a letter, in the New Testament on this topic of assurance the main purpose of which is to help us know that we are in the faith, not out of the faith. That, that book is 1 John. So start finding it if you haven't already. It's towards the back of the Bible, just a few pages before Revelation. 1 John, the book of 1 John, is where we'll be for the next few months. Right now I have it at about 14 weeks, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John wrote this letter, 1 John, and I'd argue 2 John, 3 John as well. But the Apostle John had two very different purposes in, in each of these documents, the Gospel and the letter. The purpose of the Gospel was evangelistic, to help people believe in Jesus, John 20, 30-31, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the purpose of John is evangelistic. The purpose of 1 John is pastoral, to help people know that they belong to Jesus. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Gospel of John is about salvation. 1 John is about knowing that you have salvation. Knowing that you're saved. The Gospel of John is evangelistic. 1 John is pastoral. 1 John is about assurance that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13, the key text for uh, the purpose of 1 John. 1 John 5.13, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So why did John need to write this letter to a series or group of churches around Ephesus in the late first century on this topic of assurance? Why did he have to put this document together that is all about assurance? Well, we won't get too deep into the weeds here, but I do want to read you basically what I surmise is the context of this letter. Believers in these churches that John was affiliated with were being hounded by false teachers, so many of them started questioning whether they really knew God or not. Some of these believers left the churches because they'd been led by these false teachers to take different views on Jesus' person and work, and they'd been led to believe that keeping God's commands was optional for Christians, not mandatory. Especially the command to believe in God's Son and to love one another. These false teachers were still trying, when John writes, they're still trying to influence the churches. They're undermining people's confidence in the gospel. So John writes to increase their assurance. These teachers insisted that they had a special anointing which led them to go beyond the gospel and made the people in these churches wonder whether they lacked that anointing and therefore lacked the spiritual insight these teachers had. John writes to say, no, you have the only real anointing from God. He writes these churches because he loves them deeply. He calls them beloved, brothers and sisters, even children, terms of endearment. He wants to help his friends see that they are in the truth if they stay with the apostles and don't go with these false teachers. He wants to help his friends see that they're in the truth, not to make them think that they're not. This was really helpful for me this week. I've often read 1 John and been left discouraged, frankly, wondering, oh my goodness, am I really a Christian? And that's okay. It's, it's, it's good to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, I believe. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. But if you only and always live in a perpetual examination, you're going, your assurance is going to suffocate. You're going to always be wondering whether you're good enough to be in Christ. So 1 John wasn't written to help you and I do that. Rather, 1 John was written to help us believe that we are in the faith, not to help us think or make us think that we aren't. The purpose of 1 John is to comfort Christians, not confuse Christians. This book is not polemical. It's pastoral. It's written to churches, not to the false teachers. It's meant to encourage, not rebuke, to reassure and reestablish troubled saints in the gospel. This means that we need to read this book hopefully, looking for ways that confirms the work of God in our lives, not fearfully looking to confirm the deep-seated lies that you already believe about yourself. That you don't measure up, that you never will, that you never can, that God could never really, really love you unconditionally. This book is meant to encourage you, not discourage you. In this book, John says that we can know we belong to God by looking at our faith, our lives, and our loves. Our faith, our lives, and our loves. He gives us a doctrinal, a moral, and a relational test. 
We'll come back to these again and again in these coming months. These tests, let me just say this right out front. I'm going to say this a lot. These tests, the doctrinal, moral, relational, are not binary. They're not binary tests, meaning I either believe or I don't. I either obey or I don't. I either love or I don't. That's not what John is doing. If that's what he were doing, we would all fail miserably. No one would be in the faith. Because we all disbelieve, disobey, and don't love very well. So these aren't binary tests. Either or. Either you're believing or you're unbelieving. Either you're obedient or you're not. That's not what he's doing. Rather, he's trying to show Christians where we need to grow in faith, in holiness, and in our relationships. And I will say something to you if you're not yet a Christian. These things are meant to show you what a Christian looks like. These are the things that we're going to study in this book. These are the things that a Christian believes, that a Christian does, and how a Christian participates in the life of a local church with other believers. So, the place John begins his letter is doctrinal in 1 John chapter 1 because our lives flow out of the things we believe in our hearts. John knows that theological error has ethical implications, so he starts his letter by reminding his readers of some foundational theology. So our text today is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 1, 1 through 4. In this text, we're going to see that John says that the gospel is about a real person who was known by real people who now proclaim real life. The gospel is about a real person known by real people who now proclaim real life. There's a lot of overlap in these verses, so I'm not going to try to neatly divide them. As we'll see throughout this letter, John doesn't write like Paul. <laughs> and I, my brain is wired to think more like Paul. I want a nice, easy-to-follow, logical argument. Well, John doesn't give us that. <laughs> Paul writes like a builder building a tower. John writes like a bee buzzing around three flowers. And he comes back. Then he goes over here. Then he goes to this one. He keeps coming back around to what we believe, how we live, how we love, what we believe, how we live, how we love. This makes this book very repetitive, very hard to outline, and at least if this week is any indication, probably very hard to preach <laughs> as I tried to get my head around these four verses. But this approach was on purpose, and I won't give you all the technical language, but this was a way you could write letters or treatises in the ancient Greco-Roman world that was meant to teach through repetition. John is intending to show us just how important these three things are for us. What we believe, how we live, and how we love. We're going to start with what we believe, because that's where John starts. John 1, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Let me read these four verses, and then we'll talk through them. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon 
and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Number one, John says the gospel is about a real person. John highlights the realness of Jesus, the word of life, the word of life. Verses one through three, is a long and disjointed and confusing sentence. But John's basic point is that the word of life, that's the last three words of verse 1, concerning the word of life, this word of life has unmistakably and definitively come into the world, been tangibly experienced by John and others, was then proclaimed to the readers of the letter so that they could have fellowship with God and the people of God. That's what John is saying here. I know that was a little disjointed, but so are these verses. So I'm going to say it again. I think this is the summary of these verses. John's basic point is that the word of life has unmistakably and definitively come into the world, been tangibly experienced by John and others, was proclaimed to the readers of the letter so that they could have fellowship with God and the people of God. John wants his readers to know, first of all, that this word of life is, verse 1, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. This, of course, reminds us of what Kyle just read. John 1.1, 1, 1, same author, begins his gospel in almost the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, in that text, John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning means before the creation of the world. In 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, However, the meaning is slightly different because John is describing the word of life. The word of life as it was incarnate or enfleshed in Jesus Christ. The Son of God or the Word of God or the second person of the Trinity puts on flesh in human and becomes a human in Jesus Christ. So this verse is closer to John 1.14 where it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is heavy Christology, high Christology, heavy doctrine, foundational doctrine. These are the kinds of things, and I'm going to explain it in a bit more detail in just a second. But these things that John begins with, he begins his letter with, and he begins his gospel with, these are the kinds of things that you have to believe to be a Christian. If you don't believe these things, then you are not a Christian. Again, this is that doctrinal test. Doctrinal point. In the opening verse of this letter, John is recalling what he's previously written in the Gospel of John. Namely, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Word of life, is co-equal with God. Or as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. But John also wants us, the readers, to know, to see not just the divinity of Jesus, but also the humanity of Jesus. John says he heard him, saw him, 
even touched him. So he's saying in just a few words at the opening of this letter that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Completely God and completely man. This is perhaps the most profound miracle in Christianity, that God was born, that God took on flesh. This is the miracle of the incarnation. Or as the Ligonier statement on Christology says, truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. He's not half and half. He's fully God and fully man. If you don't believe that, you aren't yet a believer. And it's okay to wrestle with that. I'm not saying you don't have doubts or questions or concerns or questions, you know, about that doctrine. I'm not saying if you have doubts, you're not a believer. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to believe that with a mustard seed of faith to be saved. Jesus is God in the flesh. <clears throat> I love how he zeroes in on the humanity of Jesus. It might be that these false teachers were preaching what became known as Gnosticism or a hyper-spiritualized version of the gospel <clears throat> that diminished the flesh and bloodness of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, a real person. Jesus is not a nice idea. Dane Ortland begins his book deeper by reminding us of who Jesus is. He says, quote, We need to begin by getting clear on who this person is in whom we grow. And we start just there. He is a person, not just a historical figure, but an actual person, alive and well today. He is to be related to, trusted, spoken to, listened to. Jesus is not a concept, not an ideal, not a force, end quote. Jesus is a person, brothers and sisters. He's a person, not an idea, not a doctrine, not a concept. I wonder, do you ever spend any time meditating or thinking on the humanity of Jesus, the personhood of Jesus Christ? I often try and I'm sure many of you do this as well, to visualize what Jesus looks like. Do you ever do that? And he doesn't look like the versions we've seen in shows and stuff like that. He's going to look way better, I'm sure. One day we won't have to wonder anymore, 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall see him as he is. I recently told Susie that I can't wait to see his face. Do you long to see Jesus' face? To look into his eyes? Jesus has eyes. He has arms that will hug you. You're not a hugger? Well, you better get used to it, right? Because it's coming. He's not a, like, oh, you're my child. Nice to see you. Go wait over there with the others. 
Do you long to see the person of Jesus? Or is much of your Christian life lived trying to impress Him? Trying to gain something from Him that you already have? Jesus is, not was, a real flesh and blood person. And one day we'll see His face. Chris Tomlin says in his song, I will rise, my faith shall be my eyes. My faith shall be my eyes. That means, I think, everything we believe will one day be everything we see. Whereas Paul says, our faith will become sight. Sight. How do you think of Jesus? Is Jesus a nice concept? A logical problem to figure out? Is He a nice add-on to your basically good life? Someone who's come to make your life a little bit better than it already is. How do you think of Jesus? How do you think of Him? Is He the God who made you and wants to know you and walk with you and relate to you? Or is He someone you're mostly afraid of or ignore or second guess? Do you enjoy Him? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? He's a person. That's number one. The gospel preached by John and the apostles is about a real person. Secondly, the gospel preached by John was about a real person who was known by real people. So, Did you notice how many of these pronouns are plural? Almost all of them. Let's just go through the text really quickly. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard. So that's a plural pronoun, we, not I. We have heard, we have seen, our eyes, we looked upon, touched with our hands. Verse 2, we have seen it, testify to it. Verse 3, we have seen and heard, we proclaim. Verse 4, we are writing these things. These are plural pronouns throughout. The Son of God who came in the flesh was experienced by real people. Lots of them. John being one of a group called the apostles who were authorized, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and then authorized by Jesus to be His spokespeople. He was experienced by real people. A real person experienced by real people. He's not just a legend or a story handed on to give people something to hope in. Christianity isn't a power play. It's about a real person who was seen by real people. John says that he was seen with our eyes. John's writing is an eyewitness. His proclamation of the word of life can therefore be trusted because he saw and heard and even touched this word of life, this God-man, this person of Jesus Christ. His account could therefore be trusted over the false teachers because unlike them, 
He wasn't just communicating his own ideas. He was communicating something he'd personally heard and seen and touched. Did you see the astonishing thing he says in verse 3? Verse 3. He says that he's preached what he experienced in Jesus to these churches so that, purpose clause, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The purpose of John's preaching is so that these churches can have fellowship with the apostles, with Him and the other apostles, and therefore have fellowship with God. The purpose of John's preaching is fellowship. John Stott says, quote, The purpose of the proclamation of the gospel is therefore not salvation, but but fellowship. Properly understood, this is the meaning of salvation. Fellowship with God and with His people. Another writer says, Christian fellowship is not the sentimental and superficial attachment of a random collection of individuals, but the profoundly mutual relationship of those who remain in Christ and therefore belong to each other. Christianity is about fellowship. We just so happen to be having a fellowship meal this afternoon. But our faith is about a fellowship deeper and sweeter than the fried chicken that Matt bought. And I love fried chicken. But the fellowship we're called into is our salvation. We are called into relationship with God and with God's people. So John is making a distinction between he and the apostles and these false teachers. He's saying... Who you're with, churches, who you're with determines where you're going. If you're with us as those who've physically experienced God in the flesh, then you're with God because we're with God. That's a pretty bold statement. He's saying if you're with us, you're with God. <coughs> I'm not right on everything. Amen. <laughs> but I'm right on this. That Jesus Christ is the God-man. And that if you've come to Him through faith and His work on the cross and faith alone, you're trusting in Him and Him alone, then you are with God. You have fellowship with God and with His people. This means that those who deny these basic Christian truths about Jesus' person and work are not part of the people of God. A church isn't a church just because it says church on the building. A person isn't a person just because you say you are. Only those who have fellowship with the apostles, who have accepted their testimony and staked their lives on it, have fellowship with God. Those who deviate from the apostles do not have fellowship with God. This is one reason, friends, if you're not yet a member of a local church, this is one reason why joining and being part of a local church that believes the Bible and preaches the gospel is so crucial. Local churches are where we fellowship with the apostles. Yes, I know they're dead. I get that. But their words aren't dead. Local churches are where we live with them. We hear their words. We seek to live out their instructions together. It's where we most clearly see and experience the life of Jesus in this world as we listen and serve and pray and give and love and worship and grow together 
into a maturing and unified body of Christ. So going to church is great. Becoming part of a church through membership is way better. Because Christianity, by definition, is a fellowship. Let's call it the fellowship of the king. Amen? That was a free one. Look at verse 4. I love verse 4. I love how he just tucks this little verse in there. Another gift of being in a local church is you have opportunities for joy, more joy. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What are you talking about, John? We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Why is he so interested in his joy? And your version of the Bible might have a little footnote that says some manuscripts say your but the best, earliest, most consistent testimony is that this is, thank you, Brittany. Speaking of fellowship, service, thank you. <clears throat> the best, earliest, most reliable manuscripts are, or say that this is our, this, this word should be translated our, not your. For questions on those textual variants, see Mason afterwards. Amen. So that our joy may be complete. <clears throat> John recognizes that his joy in Jesus isn't complete if his friends in the faith are in danger of leaving the faith and joining false fellowships. So he writes to help their assurance and to increase his joy. It's not wrong, brothers and sisters, to do things for your joy. It's not wrong to serve others for your joy. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's blessing and joy in giving more, he says, than in receiving. It's not wrong to seek your joy in the joy of others. Jesus came so that our joy would be full. John 15, 11. John is saying that one way Jesus' joy grows in us is by seeking our joy in the good of others. You get that? Let me try to apply it, make it more concrete. Do you serve others begrudgingly, hoping they'll compliment you, or humbly looking for joy for you? Do you serve others hoping they'll love you, or do you serve others out of an overflow of joy in their joy? What kinds of things, friends? What kinds of things bring you lots of joy when you do them for others? Whatever it is, do those things a lot. Do them within the body of Christ and do them well. For me, I like studying the Bible and reading books and putting words together that will hopefully encourage people to love Jesus more. I enjoy wrestling with my kids or getting Susie a snack at bedtime because it makes her happy and them happy. And in those moments, seeking my joy in their joy isn't wrong. It's not selfish. That's what John is doing. He literally says, I'm writing this so that I get more joy. It's not wrong for you to serve others for your joy. Your joy in their joy. What ways are you doing that? What kinds of things can you do within the body of Christ? To increase your joy through the joy of others. 
I think this is really important because we, all, we often think of serving others as just something we have to do. You know, I have to bring some food for the fellowship lunch. Michael keeps emailing us. My goodness. <clears throat> I guess I'll throw something together. <clears throat> I guess I'll text a friend or call a friend this week just to check in on them. I guess I'll take someone to lunch. I guess I'll have coffee. You know, I, I'm really struggling financially. I guess I'll give something to the church. Hmm. What joy do we miss when we do things begrudgingly? Not looking for the joy, the blessing, Jesus says, the blessing in giving rather than receiving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. What if we're so unhappy much of the time because our, even in our service, we're self-centered and not looking for our joy in the joy of others? So, the gospel is about a real person known by real people who finally, number three, proclaim real life. Real person, real people, number three, real life. No, notice in verse one, in verse two, how many times John uses the word life or eternal life. Verse one, concerning the word of life. Verse two, the life was made manifest. We proclaim to you the eternal life. Why doesn't he just say Jesus? <laughs> this is kind of ambiguous. Why doesn't he just say concerning Jesus? You know, Jesus was made manifest. We proclaim to you Jesus. Because he's trying to teach us something about who Jesus is and what he came to give us. He's trying to say that Jesus is life. Verse 2, this eternal life that was with the Father and made manifest to us isn't some impersonal quality, impersonal quality of life that comes from the Father, but refers to the Word of life, the Son of God who was with the Father before His incarnation. Please, I know we're, we're running short on time. I'm getting close to the end, but please tune in right now. I've been lingering on this thought for days, and it is so, so, so rich. It has been for me. Listen carefully. John is saying that eternal life is found in Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God who came from the Father. And the Father is the epitome of eternal life. God is eternal life. Literally. God is eternal life. That's literally who He is. So, God's Son comes bringing the only kind of life that God has, the eternal kind. Having Jesus, then, is having eternal life. Being in Christ, brothers and sisters, right now, no matter how you feel, being in Christ means being caught up into the very life of God, into a quality and quantity of life that is unlike any other kind of life you can pursue for yourself here in this world. Being a Christian is not about avoiding hell or impressing people with how awesome you are. Being a Christian is about being caught up into the very life of God. A life that starts when you receive Christ and are born again. So if that's you, you have it right now. Right now, you have this eternal life that was with the Father and the Son 
You don't have to wait for this life when you die. You're like, John, but man, this is a really difficult season and I'm overwhelmed with so many questions and confusions and doubts and anxieties. Relationships are all screwy. I'm working my hands to the bone to impress people. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes with an unconditional love. A love that's so high, so deep, so wide, as boundless as the person of God Himself. He comes with you to you with a love and a life meant to give your weary heart rest. Meant to give your weary heart rest. And courage. Great courage to do the things He's calling you to do. Being in Christ means being caught up into the very life of God. <clears throat> the message John is proclaiming then is a message that is embodied in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. For the apostles, Jesus was the message and the message was Jesus. For true churches, Jesus is the message and the message is Jesus. Real Christianity is about Jesus because that's where we find eternal life. Who He is and what He did is what we proclaim. Not our best ideas about God or not about trying to live impressive lives. Our goal as a church, brothers and sisters, if you're a member of our church, you may wonder sometimes, man, what are we about? What are John and Jared trying to do? Well, here it is. Here's the vision. We're trying to stay on message, and the message is Jesus. Pretty cool vision statement, huh? Yeah. Short and sweet. Our goal isn't numbers or buildings and programs and baptisms and being hip and being cool and being whatever. Our goal is Jesus Christ. To live is Christ, Paul says. Our life together, our fellowship is built on and sustained by Jesus. Not me, not Jared, not other preachers, not music styles, not location, not age demographics, not how much money we have. Our life together must orbit around Jesus just as the earth orbits around the sun. If we stop orbiting around Jesus, then we die. Apart from Him, we have nothing and can do nothing. Jesus was the message, and the message was Jesus. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The gospel is about a real person known by real people who now proclaim real life. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, we're really happy that you're with us. I wonder, do you know Jesus yet as a real person? Or is He still a concept? Or an idea? Have you accepted what His apostles say about Him? Do you have the life of God within you? <clears throat> John says later in his letter, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, a very important question for everyone, including whoever's phone is ringing. Sorry, someone hates me now. <laughs> the most important question for us is, 
do we have the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have, have the Son does not have life. Do you have the Son? Having the Son doesn't mean you don't have any doubts. Having the Son doesn't mean you don't struggle with assurance. We aren't the first ones to live in the tension of, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to spend the next several months considering what having the Son looks like from 1 John. But for now, let me just say as we close that having the Son most simply means loving the Son. Those who love Jesus are in Jesus and have Jesus and are held by Jesus. And Jesus in them creates a deepening faith, a more joyful and consistent obedience and a stronger love for His people. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Do you have the Son this morning? God gave us this letter to comfort us and help us along the narrow road of faith, not to make things more confusing and difficult. So, as we begin this study, read ahead. Maybe each morning you'll read a little section of 1 John for the next few months. Meditate. Pray through this letter. Pray for these sermons to create life and joy and assurance in your heart and as our, in our life together as a church. Next week, we'll see how John connects our honesty about sin with our assurance that we're forgiven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we worship you. We thank you and praise you for sending your son eternal life. We are so grateful that we are caught up into the very life of God through union with your Son, through relationship with Jesus. I pray for those who don't yet know Christ, that they would turn from their sins and call out to Him in faith and give their lives and their hearts to love Him and follow Him. I pray that you would increase our love as a church for this great and glorious gospel for Jesus Christ. May Jesus always be our message. Keep us on message, Father. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, the anointing that comes from you. Sustain us, strengthen us, protect us, provide for us. Grow us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray in His name. Amen.